Amen. So please take your Bibles again. Let's turn together to Romans chapter 9. Encourage you to get a Bible out and look at the portion together. We're going to read those first three verses again tonight. It's going to be the focus of our attention. The first three verses of chapter 9. Paul says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ, for my brethren. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, please bow with me in prayer. Let's call upon the Lord for his help and grace as we come around his word tonight. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father, we come before a portion of your word, inerrant, infallible, inspired by the Holy Ghost. A passage that is a very personal description of the Apostle Paul's heart. Dear Father, help us to see it as much more than one man's burden. But see it, O God, as a revelation of your will for all of us, that we would follow Paul as he follows Christ Jesus. Help us to understand the sentiments of his heart, and then by your grace, by the work of your Spirit, work those in our souls. Apply the word directly to each and every heart tonight. Help us, O Lord, to understand the words and then to live them out. Grant us grace tonight. Bless this portion of Scripture to each and every hearer. Give help in the preaching and in the hearing of the word. And we will give thee the glory in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. If you were to ask someone with a a fairly moderate degree of Bible knowledge to name one chapter that exalts the sovereignty of God in salvation, I suspect many would turn your attention to Romans chapter 9. It is often used as that, if you like, that, that central chapter that proves that salvation is a work of God's free grace according to God's foreordained eternal purposes. It's a favorite chapter of those within the Reformed community. And of course, one of the challenges that come to those who hold to these doctrines is the accusation that we do not have a trouble in our souls regarding those who are lost. But I wonder, did you ever notice, in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, each of the three chapters open with Paul giving a personal statement regarding his burden. Chapter 9, we've read those verses. He's great heaviness, sorrow in his heart. He could wish himself a curse from Christ for the sake of his brethren. Look at chapter 10, verse number 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Chapter 11, verse number 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, God hath not cast away his people. You see, these three chapters, they all open with an expression of Paul's burden and desire, yes, for the salvation of his own Jewish people. But it's his burden. Again, we're going to see tonight, with the help of the Lord, that understanding God's sovereignty does not lead to the conclusion 
that we ought not to be greatly concerned regarding the lost souls of man, men around us. Clearly, these three chapters have a very significant historical place. At a right time, at Paul's time in his ministry, there is this transferring between the preaching to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, and he's wrestling in his soul regarding God's purpose for Israel. It certainly sits at a very important moment in time in history. But of course, there is wider significance. There's general application. There are things regarding the doctrine of God. We see things regarding God's purpose for Israel even today. But please note the words in chapter 11, verse 18 and following. Because I want to encourage you, again, if you, if you read these chapters and you think to yourself, well, this is just an academic exercise and the application to our hearts is, is limited, you are very much mistaken. Because Paul, when he comes towards the end of his argument, in verse 11 of chapter, uh, verse 18, sorry, of chapter 11, he says this, Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. He's referring to Gentiles. That as they would read these chapters, they ought not to have an arrogant and proud spirit towards the Israelites, but rather remember that Israel bears up them in the covenant of God. And the warning continues, verse 19, I will say then the branches are broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they are broken off, and thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. You see, we're going to read these portions and we're going to see, yes, unbelief has very serious consequences. It's true for Israel, and it's true for you tonight. As you read these chapters, we must continually bring ourselves to the realization that to die in unbelief and to die outside of Christ involves going to a lost eternity. And again, that is the thrust of Paul's burden in chapter 9 here. He feels the weights of the lostness and the impending damnation of his brethren. And that, that's his burden. And we saw last time that they are those who at that time were accursed. They were separate from Christ Jesus. Oh yes, God is sovereign in salvation, sovereign over their salvation, but yet man is absolutely responsible for their unbelief. That's the point of the passage. They they, they live in unbelief and they're uh, accursed from Christ Jesus. Verse number 3. If they go to a lost eternity, it will be due to their sin and due to their unbelief. But Paul has his burden of soul. His desire, his prayer to God for Israel is that they would be saved. So last time, I trust you remember, that we identified that verse number 3, in the first part of verse number 3, is really the, the central clause of this section, verse 1 through 5. And again, you've got to see it. It does flow as one argument. Verse number one, I see the truth in Christ all the way down to the amen of verse number five. But the, the, the central clause in this whole section is I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The four in verse number three takes us back to the first two verses. And then, of course, the who in verse number four leads on from verse number three. You see the structure. Very, very simple. And thus, I, I turn your attention again to your outline in the bulletin. I, I hinted at this last time. I actually reordered things a little bit, but I hinted at this last time. Uh, the first thing you see in this section, and uh, must understand, is the sense of Paul's desire. He expresses the desire, verse number three, but what does that desire actually mean? 
Then you go back to verse 1 and 2 and think about the sincerity of that desire. Because he emphasized it very, very clearly in three ways. Verse number 1. But then you think also of the scope of that desire. And again, he highlights it. His burden at, at this point is for his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's where we're going to go tonight. We're going to work right through that structure. Uh, and I trust that as we go, we'll see things of importance along the way. Let's begin then with the sense or the meaning of this desire. Now, please remember that there are three words in verse number three, a curse from Christ, but those three words express two connected but distinct thoughts. The word accursed there is the word that you will know. We read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It is the word anathema, and it's drawn from the Old Testament, and it means something that is devoted. That's what it means in its original idea, something devoted, but particularly in Paul's usage, something that is devoted to destruction. Paul always used it in the negative. We saw that First Corinthians 16. Those that love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let them be anathema. Devoted to destruction. Waiting the final damnation that will be theirs for their sin. Anathema. The other section, or the other part of that, those three verses, or those three words, sorry, a curse from Christ. You've got that other section, from Christ, which means that they're away from Christ. These things are connected. If you're away from Christ, you're accursed. And if you're accursed by nature, you're away from Christ. But we should see those things, though, as, as somewhat distinct. In Christ is every blessing. Outside of Christ, there is no grace and no blessing. And so this is Paul's burden here. And he's saying in verse number 3, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren. First of all, please note that it means what it means. Anathema here, accursed, means one devoted to destruction. One suffering the eternal wrath of God. And the problem of this text is not solved by looking at the strength of the words. Some have tried to do that. They've tried to redefine what anathema might mean at this particular situation. But Paul's usage is so consistent. He always uses it in a negative regarding those who are in danger of eternal damnation. Those that preach a false gospel, Galatians, let them be anathema. Those that love not Christ, let them be anathema. And here he's saying the same thing. I could wish that myself were anathema, cursed. No grace. Hellbound. Now, Robert Haldane, who's a very, very helpful uh, commentary on Romans written in Geneva in the time he was with Calvin, uh, on Calvin's Geneva at that time, not with Calvin, but on Calvin's Geneva, he, he wrote, uh, again, a very helpful commentary on Romans. And he looks at these verses and he says, well, actually, what you're seeing here is Paul writing in the past. He's saying, really, what Paul is saying is before he was converted, he lived in such a way that he, he wanted, in their eyes, to be a curse from Christ because he saw Christ as a false Christ. And so the sect was brethren. He had this previous wishage. But that's not consistent. It's not what the text means. It's not even consistent with the grammar of the text. It means what it means. His burden is to be a curse from Christ. 
But secondly, it doesn't mean what you might think it means. I'm not trying to be confusing here. Well, maybe just to get you thinking a little bit. But it doesn't mean what you might think it means. It's not Paul desiring that he could be a substitute for the Jewish people. That in some way, he, he could die so that they could live. That's not the thing here at all. That's not possible. And it denies Christ's work. So let's, let's get that one out of the way. He's also not suggesting that he believes that he could actually be accursed. Romans 9 is clear in Paul's theology. He is persuaded, verse 38, I am persuaded, absolutely, unmovably convinced in my persuasion that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even my desire. Again, God works in the heart of the child of God. The child of God's heart cannot change and flick in such a way that one minute they love Christ, the next minute they leave Christ. The true child of God has the Spirit of God within them, and they will always, always be with Christ Jesus. So he's not suggesting that he could be accursed. He's also not suggesting his desire to be cut off from Christ Jesus. Again, Philippians chapter 3 is so clear in that he counts everything but dung that he might win Christ Jesus. He's, he's come to love the Lord, and nothing will shake the Apostle Paul from the love he has for Christ Jesus. He's not suggesting that his love for the Jew surpasses his love for Christ. That's not it either. And so you see, well, th- this gets quite difficult, doesn't it? You see all the things it cannot mean. <laughs> what can it mean then? Well, let me borrow some help from those who, again, know these things better than I do. Professor Murray, again, who's coming in Romans, I would recommend selling your shirt and buying. Uh, Murray says this, The tense used in the Greek is well expressed by the version in the words, I could wish. Again, just for the technical people here, it's in the imperfect tense. And the idea is, it is an act that is unfinished due to some sort of obstacle. So it's a desire but that desire cannot be completed due to an obstacle preventing the completion of that desire. It's an imperfect act, incomplete in its action. An obstacle. And the obstacle that is present is the impossibility of the child of God being severed from Christ Jesus. So, Murray continues. It is hypothetical to the effect that if it were possible and of avail for the salvation of his kinsmen, he would be willing to be accursed on their behalf. The intensity of the apostle's love for his own people is hereby disclosed. And so the idea here is that Paul is seeking to bring about words that do justice to the burden within his own soul And he's saying, such is my love for my brethren, that if they were possible, this is the extent I would go to for their salvation. Such is the intensity of my longing. But my longing is hindered in the sense that I am am so attached to Christ Jesus. Calvin puts it this way. It was therefore a proof of the most fervent love that Paul did not hesitate to call on himself the condemnation which he saw hanging over the Jews in order that he might deliver them. This is an expression 
of a love that in many ways is actually beyond words. He can't put into words, if you like, the extent and the intensity of his love for his own people. Now, immediately, you ask the question, if this is hypothetical, could it not be insincere and pretended? Can you not take a word like this and say, well, look how strong my love is, but you know, I, I can't abide it, and so therefore it's an insincere and pretended expression. What's the second point, folks? The sincerity of his desire. Verse 1 and 2 emphasize sincerity, immediately front-ending any objection to what they might have to verse number 3. It's entirely sincere. But he's saying, this is, this is the measure of my burden for my brethren. Such is his love. And of course, does that not fit in perfectly with verse number 2? I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. What would cause that heaviness and sorrow? But the unbelief of those whom he loves so passionately. He sees the rejection of Christ and his love as such that he finds himself in great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart. It's an expression of the apostle's love for his brethren. Right, leaving aside the difficulties, and there are several, and leaving aside for now those who are in view in this particular burden, please note this comes as a tremendous challenge. You're reading here the words of the apostle. A man filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, not a perfect man, but a man filled with the Holy Spirit uh, and a man who is writing under inspiration. By the guidance of the Spirit of God, he cannot write a word that does not convey truth and does not apply to your souls. And so this burden that he has ought to come as a challenge to your own souls. You see, this burden that belongs to the apostle is present in one who understands God's sovereign will. Think of verse number 18. Chapter 9, verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. He understands the sovereignty of God in salvation. He understands that God is able to show mercy to whom he shows mercy, and that God is also the one who hardens the unconverted soul. We'll see more of that in future studies. So an understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation does not pour water upon the fires of Paul's love for lost souls. His understanding of the doctrines of grace does not bring a result in his soul where he says, well, God is sovereign. Whatever will be, will be. If they're lost, they're lost. It's in God's control. Therefore, his burden is diluted by a misapplication of the sovereignty of God. Doesn't happen. He also is one who delights in God's justice. Look at verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up. Pharaoh raised up as one who will come under the judgment of God, that I might show my power in thee. What power? Power unto judgment, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Verse number 22. For if what if God, willing to show his wrath, 
and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Paul delights in the truth that God will mete out his justice upon those who die in their sins. He delights in the presentation of God's justice, but his understanding of God's justice and his delight in God's justice does not mean he delights in the unbelief of his brethren. What? I'm just showing you what's in the scriptures here, folks. What happens in the final day when the lost are sent into that lake of fire made the devil and his angels and our delight in God's justice will indeed be pure and without sin. But as we live in this world, we can at one and the same time delight in God's justice and yet still have a burning and fervent love for lost souls. And not only is that possible, it ought to be the case. The pattern here of the Apostle Paul serves in a form of implied precept. We are to follow the Apostle as he follows Christ Jesus. As he follows his Savior who looked upon Jerusalem and said, I would have gathered you, but you would not. And Christ's tears bear testimony to his heart on that occasion. His burden for lost souls. And so as the Apostle Paul follows Christ Jesus, so we must follow the Apostle Paul. And the absence of a heaviness and continual sorrow in our hearts ought to be a cause for prayer in our private times. God, give me more of the heart of the apostle. May I not be complacent with the lost souls all around me tramping their way to hell. May I have this love and compassion for their souls. You see, I think Paul, of course, understood the gospel. He understood that these souls were souls who were living a life blindly devoted to destruction. They're on the way to a lost eternity. But he also understood that these were souls who were not enjoying the blessing in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul understood the glories of Christ. I'm not trying to say to you should be burdened for souls simply because of hell, although that, of course, is a strong motivation. But even more than that, we should be burdened for souls because they are not enjoying Christ Jesus, in whom is every blessing. You see, our love for souls is driven by knowing and believing both the joy of Christ and the horrors of hell. Believing both of these things drives our souls to love those who are living in unbelief. A lack of love may be due in part to a lack of understanding or belief of one of those two things. We've forgotten to believe in what a lost eternity is like. But I wonder, have we lost the joy of what it is to be in Christ Jesus? We don't really have that joy in ourselves and therefore we don't really think that others are missing much. Oh, that God would just enliven our hearts to know more of Christ. That we would have that joy and then the burden for others. It is a challenge, isn't it? But it's also a comfort. You know, sometimes 
you hear people praying in prayer meetings, and you hear the brokenness of their hearts, you may hear their voice breaking, you may be aware of tears falling as they pray for loved ones. Being heartbroken for lost souls does not mean you're at war with God. Do you ever think that? My loved one's lost. This is according to God's sovereign will. Right now, if they're out of Christ, it's because God has ordained it from all eternity. Right now, they'll be outside of Christ. We believe that. And so you have this situation where you think, oh, if, if I'm brokenhearted over their salvation, then it may be that I'm at war with God and His sovereignty, and I, I should be more content regarding their state. No! Delighting in God's sovereignty and rejoicing in God's justice, these things are not incompatible with a burden for souls. And we should be comforted that being heartbroken over lost souls is entirely consistent with good theology. And with spiritual living. And we should be delighting in that. And praying more, oh Lord, may my heart be more broken for those who are out of Christ Jesus. It's a challenge. But I trust also a comfort for some of you. Secondly then, please note the sincerity of this desire. We've thought a little bit about the, the meaning of it, the sense of it in terms of love for the lost, particularly the Jews. Well, that sincerity is stated in three ways in verse number one. Three separate ways. I say the truth in Christ. That's the positive. He's, he's truthing in Christ. Now, when he says in Christ, he's referring to his spiritual state. He's in union with Christ. He's a saved man. Paul delights in union with Christ. And so here he's, he's looking to his spiritual state. He's not the old man. He's a new man. He's in Christ. And in light of union with Christ, he is able to say truth. And so I say the truth in Christ. He then backs it up with a negative. I lie not. That's the, if you like, the opposite. He's, he's emphasizing the point. I say the truth. I'm not lying. And then thirdly, to emphasize it again, my conscience is also bearing witness in the Holy Ghost. Again, he's very careful in the words he uses here. He understands that man's conscience can be deceived. We can have a peace in our conscience, and yet that peace not be according to truth. And so he brings the words, his conscience bears witness, and it's in the Holy Ghost. He's, he's saying, and please remember, he's writing under inspiration. And he's saying in his own soul, my conscience is in the Holy Ghost. Here I'm emphasizing my sincerity. Why? Why does he go to such lengths? Surely, all of that could be missed out. He could just start the chapter in verse number 2. It's the Apostle Paul. He's expressing truth. Why does he go to such length to express his sincerity? Well, I think, again, I can't be 100% certain, but I'm 99.9% certain. I am pretty certain that he shows such sincerity because he understands that his statement may be dubious to some. That what he's going to say in verse 2 and 3, there are some and they're going to question that. Partly perhaps because of the hypothetical nature of the next statement. I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ. But also remember, after all, these Jews had rejected Christ. They had their opportunity. They've already, they've had the gospel, they've been preached to, they've rejected that. 
Surely now, Paul, it's time to move on. Time to move on from your burden for these Jews. Don't we see that in practical terms? He goes to the Gentiles. He goes to the Gentiles at a time when the Jews had treated Paul dreadfully. It's all of these reasons. In the mind of an unbeliever, or at least someone skeptical regarding the apostle, all of these reasons to say, Paul, yeah, right. If I can use that term of phrase. You say this? Nah, don't buy it. And so he makes the point very plainly in these three ways. I seek the truth. I lie not. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Ghost. So that's the expression three ways. You'll note in your outline, it's applied in four ways. I hear just as I was mulling this over in my mind, there were just, just it was like brainstorming. These disconnected thoughts were coming regarding this verse, but I thought, well, I'll just give them to you one by one. First of all, please understand, the Jewish rejection of Jesus as the Christ should not lead to hatred of the Jew. Because they've rejected the Christ does not excuse any hatred of the Jew. That's the first thing. But the second thing more practically is this. Paul's fear of being thought as seemingly insincere shows us that hypocritical love should be shunned by every true believer. Put it this way. When you express your love for another brother or sister, or your love for an unsaved soul, the last thing you want them to say is he doesn't mean it. Wives, you do not want your husband to say, I love you, and suspect even just a little bit that he doesn't mean it. We all understand by nature how awful it is to have insincere and hypocritical love. The Apostle John, of course, 1 John chapter 3, he says, let us love not so much in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Sincerity in Christian love. We need that, folks. We need that in our families. We need that in our churches. We need that in our community. When God says, love your neighbor as yourself, that your love for your neighbor is not insincere. That your love for lost neighbors is not insincere. But rather you have a genuineness in your heart. Thirdly, it is assumed by the Apostle Paul here. And again, I mentioned these are disconnected thoughts really. It is assumed by the Apostle Paul that union with Christ will produce truth-telling. How does he back up his words? He adds those two words in Christ. That's the assumption that those in Christ tell the truth. The implication is this, that Christians should therefore hold the highest standards in speaking, in writing, and in sharing things that are only true. That of all people in all the world, we should be those who are most concerned with truth and have no part in modern society spinning and manipulating facts to deceive others. People should know what we mean. We should say what we mean. Be plain, true, honest, and upright because that's what people in Christ do. They speak the truth. But fourthly, Christians 
should make proper use of their conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God that you should use. You know, Paul is here accused of insincerity. You take anything in your life, someone comes along to you and they accuse you of something. Whatever it may be, I don't really mind what it is. Whatever it is, they come along and they bring an accusation to you and say, you're guilty of X, Y, or Z. I got Z. I'm really getting very American now. X, Y, or Z. And they bring this accusation to you. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you're, you're going to make good just your conscience. Because that's a gift from God. Now, you're going to be careful. You're going to hear the accusation, and you're going to examine your heart and practice and make sure that your heart is according to God's word. Because your conscience must be informed and must be guided. If your conscience is just your own opinion, it's worth very little. But a conscience guarded by the word of God is tremendously useful. And having a clear conscience in the Holy Ghost is a blessing to respond to the accusations of anybody and also the devil. You say, I'm a hypocrite. I know in my conscience and the Holy Ghost that is not true. At times I behave hypocritically, but I do really love the Lord. As Peter would say to the Lord, Lord, you know all things. With a clear conscience I can say, you know I love thee. Use your conscience. So it's an interesting verse. It's in the context of Romans 9, but there are certainly things to learn from it more broadly. Well, finally, as you close tonight, please note the scope of this desire, the scope of this desire. We see it here. It's for his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's a reference, as we'll see uh, later on, a reference to the Jewish nation made up of, of individuals. This is not just, I don't believe, it's not just a burden for the nation. There are some who take Romans 9 and they apply it in a very nationalistic sense in Israel as a whole. But he talks about his brethren. If you like, a collection of individuals. His kinsmen according to the flesh. Because, of course, what is a nation but a group of people? He specifies that they are kinsmen according to the flesh. That ought to have been a wonderful thing to hear for those who were Gentile believers in Rome. Because over in chapter 12, he refers to them. Chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, without any according to the flesh, just brethren. You know, when you're saved by God's grace, your spiritual brethren, your spiritual family becomes more important than any ethnic family. There are brethren and there are brethren. But Paul's burden here is certainly for these brethren. He mentions in verse number 6 that not all Israel which are of Israel. He sees a distinction between those who are Israel of the flesh and those who are Israel in the Spirit of God. Verse 24 of chapter 9, again he says, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. He, he's seeing Israel as those who have not believed, who are not called. He's a burden for those. Verse 21 of chapter 10 a disobedient and gainsaying people. Burden. A burden for his ethnic family. Ah, Paul's burden was also for Gentiles. He doesn't just burden for the Jew. He's burdened for his neighbors, Jews and Gentiles alike. 
But we do certainly see here the implication that he has a peculiar love for his kindred. I know Israel's unique. But brethren, don't apologize for loving those of your own ethnic background. It's not inconsistent with a general love for all humanity to have a particular love for your countrymen. It's not wrong. If you like, there are concentric circles of burden. You should be burdened for your own soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. So first of all, make sure your own soul is right with God. But then you're going to burden for your immediate family, your neighbors and your nation, and then for all men. There are these, if you like, degrees of burdens. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The gospel goes out to all, but it's not wrong to burden for your nation. Burden for the souls of your countrymen. That's entirely appropriate. But I think, and we'll end with this, I think part of Paul's burden here in this scope is not only because they are his kindred, but because his kindred are so privileged that what's at stake here is the reputation of the name of God. It's not just about the fact that they're born in the same ethnicity. It's the fact that they are so privileged, verse 4 and 5, that the word or the concern is, verse 6, that the word of God hath taken none effect. The reputation of God is what's at stake here. God's covenantal purposes seem to be at risk. So again, we come back to the same reality. The glory of God is the ultimate burden of our souls regarding lost people. That God will be glorified in the salvation of souls. Tonight, are you unconverted tonight? Are you here in this gathering or watching on via the webcast and you are someone and you are not one of Christ's? You're one who at present could be described as being accursed, separate from Christ Jesus. Do you see the love of the apostle for people like you? Do you see the heartbeat of the apostle, a spiritual man, a man in Christ Jesus, and the burden that man has for your soul? Are you unmoved by that reality? Or do you realize that there are those in this gathering, and perhaps their heart for you is just the same, that their love for you is so intense that their longing is that you will be saved tonight? You see, spiritual people, they want you to come to Christ. They want you to enjoy the blessings of the gospel, to run and to flee from the state of destruction and and go to the cross and find Christ and find peace with God. That's the burden of their hearts tonight. It's the burden of my soul. I want you to find Christ. May God enable you to do so for his name's sake. Let's pray, please. Lord God and Father, we have turned these verses around in our minds and, and tried to understand them, but we pray, O oh God, just as we come to the end of this service, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a deepening love for those out of Christ Jesus. Those who are near to us, those we know well, again, those in the, in the countries of this world. Dear Father, draw souls to the Savior tonight. Do your work in this very meeting. Perhaps some, O oh Lord, in the 
They're, they're here and they, they, they're a stranger to God and to grace. They're a stranger to the gospel of Christ. Break their hearts tonight. Work on their souls. And may tonight be the first night of a tremendous gathering of souls. Lord, send us revival. Give us a burden for souls. May Christ be glorified. In whose name we pray. Amen.